Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! Welcome to another episode of Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam. I'm Dietitian Faraz, and thank you for tuning in. So before going into today's topics, I got some really, really exciting news I gotta share with you. So over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning, and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the RD exam. These topics are covered with full explanations, tons of mnemonics, illustrations, animations, tables, and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes. This full program is now available on our website at chompdowndietetics.com. Make sure to check out the program sneak peek video on the website's homepage and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, with that being said, we got a jam-packed show. Let's get right into it. Which of the following is not synthesized in the pancreas? A. Trypsin B. Carboxypeptidase C. Chymotrypsin D. Enteropeptidase So the pancreas secretes zymogens, which is the name for the inactive precursors to enzymes. One way to remember that zymogen refers to inactive is to focus on the Z. Whenever you see a cartoon sleeping, there's usually Zs that are shown above their head. So the cartoon is sleeping. It's being inactive. So it's catching some Zs. Zymogen means inactive. These zymogens need to be stimulated in order to be released into the duodenum of the small intestine. So... In the small intestine, the enteroendocrine cells secrete cholecystokinin, aka CCK, which stimulates the pancreatic acinar cells to produce more zymogens and transport them into the duodenum. So, now the duodenum has these zymogens. We have to activate these zymogens so they become active proteases. The zymogens' names are trypsinogen, chymotrypsinogen, and procarboxypeptidase. Whenever you see the suffix ogen, it refers to a zymogen. So in the membrane region of the duodenum, there are these enzymes being synthesized called enteropeptidases. These enteropeptidases will activate the zymogens. Trust me, they're so good at activating you guys. So the way to remember this is that enteropeptidase starts with the word enter, and so does the word entertain. The enteropeptidases entertain the zymogens so much that they get activated. 
the specific zymogen that we want enteropeptidase to activate is trypsinogen. So let's say the enteropeptidase entertains trypsinogen enough that trypsinogen gets activated. What happens when it gets activated? Well, the trypsinogen changes to trypsin, going from its zymogen form to its active form. Now we have trypsin and it's active. Now I gotta tell you something about trypsin, it feels so good being activated that he goes over to his buddies, chymotrypsinogen and procarboxypeptidase, and activates them. Now, chymotrypsinogen has been activated to become chymotrypsin, and procarboxypeptidase has been activated to become carboxypeptidase. So these three proteases can now go about breaking down proteins into smaller polypeptides and amino acids. You can remember this by thinking that trypsin and chymotrypsin trip proteins so they fall, and once they fall, they lose their peptide bonds and become smaller. And you can also think of carboxypeptidase and focus on the box part that carboxypeptidase throws punches, aka it boxes proteins so they lose their peptide bonds and become smaller. Now a way to remember all three in general is CTC, chickens teaching cricket. Chickens with the C representing chymotrypsin, teaching with the T representing trypsin, and cricket with the C representing carboxypeptidase. Stick with me on this. Now, I'm not super into cricket. I'm very inactive about learning about cricket. You can say I'm very zymogen about learning cricket. However, if you tell me that a chicken is going to teach me cricket, that will activate me to learn. Because who doesn't want to see a chicken teaching cricket? That would be so awesome. Chickens are the perfect mascot for chymotrypsin, trypsin, carboxypeptidase because they are all active proteases and chickens are all very active animals. They do a lot of stuff, right? They're constantly flapping their wings, they're consistently balk-balking, and for some reason, chickens always seem to be crossing the road, you know? <laughs> they're, they're active animals. But because they are so active, they might be a pain to have settled down and actually teach cricket. You can say they might be a pain for us since they'll want to keep crossing the road and not teach us cricket. Pain for us sounds similar to pancreas. So you can associate this little odd story with the fact that CTC, chymotrypsin, trypsin, and carboxypeptidase are all originally from the pancreas. Also, in our acronym here, it has chickens teaching cricket. Teaching itself incorporates a lot of activities. And cricket is a sport, so it's also very active. So CTC, chymotrypsin, trypsin, and carboxypeptidase are all active proteases originally from the pancreas where they were in their zymogen form. Okay, now we can go back to our question. Which of the following is not 
synthesized in the pancreas. A. Trypsin, B. Carboxypeptidase, C. Chymotrypsin, D. Enteropeptidase. So, remembering our acronym CTC, chickens teaching cricket, with C representing chymotrypsin, T representing trypsin, and C representing carboxypeptidase, which are all active proteases originally from the pancreas, where they were in their zymogen form. So, this eliminates ABC, leaving us with D as the correct answer. Now, although enteropeptidases entertain the zymogen so much that they get activated, they're synthesized in the membrane region of the duodenum and not the pancreas. Now let's move on to our next appetizer question. Which of the following enzymes has the most specificity for the liver? A. ALT B. AST C. Both ALT and AST D. Trypsin So to answer this question, how about we imagine something? Let's imagine yourself holding something. Then, all of a sudden, somebody hits you super hard. You would most likely drop what you were holding, right? Same concept when it comes to liver enzymes. Alanine aminotransferase, aka ALT, and aspartate aminotransferase, aka AST, are liver enzymes in the hepatocytes, aka liver cells. And these hepatocytes hold ALT and AST. They hold these enzymes. But when the hepatocytes get injured, they release the liver enzymes. And as a result, they get released into the bloodstream. Now, both ALT and AST are found within the liver. However, AST is also present in the heart, skeletal muscle, kidneys, brain, red blood cells. ALT, on the other hand, is mostly found in the liver. Technically, the ALT is more representative of liver issues since it is primarily concentrated in the liver, whereas AST can be representative of other issues outside of liver issues. In other words, ALT is less abundant outside of the liver, and increased ALT level is more suggestive of liver disease. Thus, ALT has more specificity for the liver. And in most liver diseases, ALT is going to be higher than AST, with a notable exception being in alcoholic liver disease, where AST is actually greater than ALT, and this is because alcohol increases mitochondrial release of AST, while at the same time, it's decreasing production of ALT, and that's because of a pyridoxine deficiency. Now, a way to remember the difference between ALT and AST is that ALT has an L in it, which can stand for liver, since ALT is found primarily in the liver, and AST has an S in it, 
which can stand for spread out, since AST is found spread through various parts of the body, like the brain, skeletal muscle, and kidneys. So, with that in mind, let's go back to our question. Which of the following enzymes has the most specificity for the liver? A. ALT, B. AST, C. Both ALT and AST, D. Trypsin. So we know trypsin can't be the answer because it's a pancreatic protease, so it's not relevant here at all. Now, ALT or AST or both? Well, ALT has an L in it, which stands for liver, and since ALT is found primarily in the liver, this means it has high specificity for the liver. Thus, ALT is the correct answer. Okay, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Which of the following would meet the nutrient needs of 97 to 98% of healthy individuals? A, E-A-R, B, D-R-I, C, U-L, D, R-D-A. So we have DRIs, dietary reference intakes, which tell us how much of each nutrient we need to consume to maintain good health and prevent chronic diseases. Now, you've probably heard this before, but the term DRI is an umbrella term. And I'm really tired of hearing umbrella term. I prefer poncho term. So we're flipping the script here, and we're saying the DRI is a poncho term for the reference values known as EAR, AI, RDA, and UL. Wow, try saying that fast three times. EAR, AI, RDA, UL. Well, not too bad, but I'm sure after three times it gets pretty crazy. Now, you can remember all four of these by thinking of the word urea with U standing for U-L, R standing for R-D-A, E standing for E-A-R, and A standing for A-I. You can remember that they fall under the D-R-I by focusing on the first two letters, D-R, which can be thought of as Dr. I. And oftentimes, people value the doctor's recommendations above everyone else's. So, Dr. I's recommendations are on top of everything. Okay? So, DRIs are the poncho term. They're on top of everything. Now, let's get into the different DRIs by first discussing the EAR. The EAR stands for Estimated Average Requirement, and it looks at the average amount of a nutrient that appears sufficient for 50% of the population. Let's look at an example where the EAR for crunk juice for a group of men over the age of 40 is 14 cans of crunk juice per day. That's the EAR, 14 cans. This means that if every man in this group drinks 14 cans of crunk juice a day, only half of them would obtain enough crunk juice 
to meet their requirement, which would be terrible because you want to achieve maximum crunkness at all times. And for those of you that remember what crunk juice is, I applaud you. Now, another thing to keep in mind is EAR is used when you are looking at intake within a group of people, not individuals. There are a couple of ways to remember the EAR. First, EAR spells out ear, but it's only one ear. It doesn't say ears, implying two. There's only one ear. Normally, we have two ears, so one ear, E-A-R, is only 50% of the ears we have. And the E-A-R is looking at 50% of the population. Another way to remember the E-A-R, it's a bit of a stretch, but stick with me. So EA Sports is a video game company that specializes in making sports games like Madden. Most sports usually have a halftime. So EAR halftime, 50% of the population. So it's connected that way too. You can also put the letter G in front of EAR to spell gear. And it'll remind you that the G stands for group, group of people. You can also put the letter P in front of E-A-R, or ear, to spell pair. And it will remind you that P stands for population. Population, group, both are fine as long as we remember that the E-A-R is looking at groups, populations, and not individuals. Another way to remember, write down E-A-R, okay? Now, above the A, write the letter H. Then, below the A, write the letters L and F, spelling out half. Now, that's another way that you can remind yourself that the E-A-R is looking at 50% of the population. Now, the EAR is used as the basis for calculating the RDA, so let's discuss that next. Now, the RDA stands for Recommended Dietary Allowance, and it refers to the intake levels for nutrients that meet the needs for 97 to 98% of healthy individuals. Emphasis on the word individuals. The major distinction between the EAR and the RDA, aside from the percentages attached, is that EAR is based on groups, RDA is based on individuals. Now you can remember that RDA is based on individuals by thinking of RDs as having a type A personality. A type A personality usually involves being competitive. You want to be number one, stand apart from the crowd. You want to be an individual. You can also remember this by focusing on the letter A in RDA. Since A is the first letter of the alphabet, you can associate A with one or A1 barbecue sauce. Now, going back to the type A trait, you can remember that the RDA 
covers 97 to 98% of healthy individuals by remembering it as 97 to 98% of RDs have type A personality. May not be the most accurate projection, but hey, if it helps us remember, it's all good. Now, what happens if there isn't a known intake level for a nutrient with regards to the EAR or RDA? What happens when it's not available to us either term? Well, then you're going to use AI. And the AI stands for adequate intake. And it's used when you don't have enough evidence for a nutrient to use an EAR or RDA. And that's really the main thing you need to know about AI. So, how do you remember it? One way to think about it is to think of AI as referring to artificial intelligence. If you don't have access to humans like RDs with type A personality, aka RDA, or humans with ears, aka EAR, then you'll have to resort to interacting with artificial intelligence. Another way to remember is to focus on the quit part of adequate. Think of it like RDA and EAR are not available because they quit on you, so you have to use the AI. Now, the final DRI is something called Upper Limit, the UL. This is probably the best named of all the DRIs because it tells you exactly what it is. The Upper Limit is the highest level of a daily nutrient intake that is likely to pose no risk of adverse health effects in almost all people in a specified life stage group. So as intake increases above the UL, the risk of adverse effects also increases. One way to remember is upper limit is similar to upper cut. Now an upper cut is the highest angle that a punch can reach, which is similar to the upper limit because it is the highest level a daily nutrient intake can reach that is likely to pose no risk of adverse health effects. So now we can revisit our appetizer question. Which of the following would meet the nutrient needs of 97 to 98% of healthy individuals? A, E, A, R. B, D-R-I, C, U-L, D, R-D-A. So let's break down each of these answer choices. A, E-A-R. So that's the estimated average requirement. We can use one of the devices that we came up with to remember where E-A-R can remind us of an ear and it's only one ear, so it's 50% of our total ears, and so the EAR is set for 50% of the population. Since this question is asking for 97 to 98%, that doesn't work, because 50 to 97 to 98, totally different ranges. Also, the question is asking for healthy individuals, and EAR looks at groups slash populations. So we can eliminate that as an answer choice. Okay, next answer choice is DRI. DRI stands for Dietary Reference Intake. 
and that tells us how much of each nutrient we need to consume to maintain good health. And the DRI is a poncho term for the rest of the reference values, which are E-A-R-A-I-R-D-A-U-L. And we said that you can think of it as Dr. I, and Dr. I's recommendations are above everyone else, all the other reference ranges, so it sits on top, and then the other reference ranges that we discussed fall underneath it. With specific regards to the question, which of the following would meet the nutrient needs of 97 to 98% of healthy individuals? Now, technically, DRI could be the correct answer, because whatever reference range that we're discussing, whether if it's the E-A-R-A-I-R-D-A-U-L, they are all considered DRIs. However, even though it could be technically the answer, it wouldn't be the best answer. Because if you just pick DRI, then that can refer to any of those reference values. And that's not specific enough. That's not what we want from our answer choices. We want our answer choices to be specific. Therefore, we can eliminate this as a potential answer as well. Okay, the next answer choice is UL. So UL stands for upper limit. And we remember UL by thinking of an uppercut. And the uppercut is the highest angle that you can throw a punch, similar to the UL being the highest level of daily nutrient intake that's likely to pose no risk of adverse health effects in almost all individuals. Now, what the question is asking for is 97 to 98% of healthy individuals. That is a very specific requirement, and we know for sure that that requirement is applicable to our next answer choice, which is the RDA. However, it is not mentioned in UL. Therefore, we can eliminate UL. And just as a good refresher, we remember that the RDA stands for recommended dietary allowance, and it indeed does refer to the intake levels for nutrients that meet the needs for 97 to 98% of healthy individuals. And we have a multitude of ways of remembering this. For example, you can remember that the A in RDA is the first letter of the alphabet, so you can associate A with 1 or A1. And that would mean that it's an individual reference range. And then we can also remember that if you focus on the idea that the RDA covers 97 to 98% of healthy individuals by remembering that 97 to 98% of RDs have type A personality. Thus, RDA is the correct answer. Okay, now we can move on to our next appetizer question. A patient receiving EN formula begins to have diarrhea. What should you do first? A. Stop the feed. B. Reduce the rate. C. Begin TPN, D, check medications. 
So diarrhea can certainly take place when EN is being administered enteral nutrition. However, it's often multifactorial, meaning many times there's something else going on that's causing the diarrhea. In addition, whenever you're presented with a question asking what you should do first and it's in a clinical setting, highly consider choosing the answer that indicates two things, assessment and lowest risk. With this in mind, let's look at our answer choices. The first three, stopping the feed, reducing the rate, and beginning TPN are not indicative of assessment. They are indicative of action. Look closely at the words in each choice. Stop the feed. Reduce the rate. Begin TPN. All actions. Be very mindful of how answer choices are presented because most of the time you can get a sense of whether an answer choice is implying an action as opposed to an assessment. And an assessment is what you want many, many times. Okay, in addition, all three are considered risky actions because they could cause complications for the patient that the patient would not have had to deal with otherwise had we made the choice to assess instead of act. Also, we've heard the phrase, if the gut works, use it. TPN should really be a last resort, and it's indicated if the patient has something like short bowel syndrome, ileus, things of that nature. It's also much more expensive. So we can eliminate beginning TPN, stopping the feed, and reducing the rate. This leaves us with medications. The word right before medications is check. So this is a strong indication that this is an assessment choice. Would checking medications be considered low risk? Yes, absolutely it would, especially compared to the other three choices. So it's both an assessment and it's considered low risk. Thus, it is the correct answer. One thing to note is that diarrhea is a common complication associated with drugs and antibiotics. Many drugs like acetaminophen, which is also known as Tylenol, contains sorbitol, and others such as antacids, which contain magnesium, or docusate sodium. All of these, sorbitol, magnesium, docusate sodium, can all cause diarrhea in their own right. So always, always, always check the meds. Okay, now we can move on to our next appetizer question. A study is being conducted in which two groups of people who work as dietitians are being followed. Group A has not been exposed to cigarette smoking. The other group, group B, has been exposed to cigarette smoking. Both groups are going to be tracked to see if they develop emphysema over time. Which of the following best describes this type of study? A. Analytical study. B. Descriptive study. C. 
cohort study, D, case control study. Now, research is a concept that is very near and dear to my heart because I'm getting ready to conduct my doctoral dissertation and I'm looking specifically at diversity in dietetics. So I am living and breathing research at this point. So I'm glad that there was a request made to cover an aspect of research. Now let's first break down analytical versus descriptive research. You got to ask yourself, do you want to describe what is happening or do you want to quantify a relationship? If you want to describe what is happening, then you should conduct a descriptive study. Describe is in the word. If you want to quantify a relationship, then you should conduct an analytical study. A way to distinguish between the two, descriptive studies describe what it is. Analytical studies state why it is. Another critical distinction between the two, descriptive studies cannot show cause and effect. Analytical studies can show cause and effect. Now, these are the main concepts that you need to keep in mind for descriptive and analytical research. One way to remember the difference between the two is both descriptive and analytical have the letter C in them. However, in the word descriptive, the letter C is followed by the letter R, whereas in the word analytical, the letter C is followed by the letter A. Why is this important? Because the word cause starts with the letter C and A, and the letter C is followed by the letter A in analytical. Thus, analytical research determines cause. There is also a Y in analytical, which reminds us that analytical studies answer why it is, with it being the subject of the study. On the other hand, descriptive studies start with the word dis. Now, if someone disses you, insults you, while you're walking down the street, your first reaction is going to be to say, what? So, descriptive studies answer what it is. Descriptive answer what it is, with it being the subject of the study. Also note that types of descriptive research include case reports, case studies, correlational studies, surveys, qualitative research. Analytical research consists of experimental models, randomized clinical trials, quasi-experimental designs, cohort studies, case control studies, and cross-sectional studies. Now, let's talk about the difference between case control studies and cohort studies. Let's say we start with two groups. One group that was exposed to alcohol drinking. Let's call them group A. The other group, which is not exposed to alcohol drinking, let's call them group B. So, we have two groups, 
with alcohol exposure, one with exposure group A, one without group B. So now we're going to track them to see if they develop cirrhosis. Both groups A and B live in the same town. Now we're going to look at group A and see how many develop cirrhosis and how many don't. We'll do the same with group B and see how many develop cirrhosis and how many don't. By comparing the proportions of each group of how many do and how many don't develop the disease, we are able to attain a grasp of just how strong of a risk factor alcohol drinking is for the disease. This is referred to as a cohort study. Cohort studies include any group whose members have something in common. Now, in cohort studies, participants are followed over time to see if they develop a particular outcome. Because the frequency of outcomes are being tracked, cohort studies are also known as incident studies. You can remember this by reflecting on the journey of dietetic students, which for a lot of us, we're enrolled in cohorts while going through dietetics education. And the thing we have in common is we all want to work in the dietetics field. We are also followed over time by our dietetic programs to make sure we're passing our classes and that we ultimately become dietitians or dietetic technicians, which are considered outcomes. Now, our dietetic programs could then report the frequency with which how many of us become dietitians or technicians, aka they can track the incidence of us becoming new dietitians or technicians. Okay? One thing to keep in mind, cohort studies can be prospective or retrospective. If the study starts before the outcome is known, it is a prospective study. If the study starts after the outcome is known, it is a retrospective study. Now, case control studies work in the opposite way. You start with a population that has an outcome or a disease, and that population is referred to as the cases. And then you compare the cases to a population without the outcome or disease, and that population is referred to as the controls. We'll look back at both groups, the cases and the controls, to see if we can determine what was different in the case population or what exposure they had that was different than the control population that may have led to the disease or outcome in question. For example, let's say there's a disease out there called dancing fever. Basically, if you get the dancing fever, you just can't stop juggling. Just kidding. You, you can't stop dancing. Now, you're going to be dancing while you're eating. You're going to dance while washing dishes. You dance two miles to get to the grocery store. It's a serious illness. Now, we have two groups of people. Group A, who have been diagnosed with dancing fever, and Group B, without dancing fever. They haven't been diagnosed with dancing fever. Both groups live in the same town. And we're interested in exploring 
a risk factor for this disease. Specifically, we're interested in seeing if both groups were exposed to TikTok. So now we'll compare group A and see what proportion of them had the exposure to TikTok versus what proportion of them didn't. We'll do the same for group B, our population without dancing fever, and we'll see what proportion of them had the exposure to TikTok versus what proportion of them didn't. By comparing within the disease and non-disease population about how many were exposed to the risk factor of TikTok versus how many were not exposed, we can get an idea for what kind of a risk factor this exposure is for this particular disease. This will be retrospective because the outcome status is known before the study begins. We know that a portion of our population of interest already has dancing fever. We are just trying to see if they were exposed to TikTok, and if they were, we can consider labeling TikTok as a risk factor for developing dancing fever. Case control studies can be prospective as well. However, they are rare compared to retrospective case control studies. Now, case control studies are well-named and therefore easier to remember because the cases are the participants with the disease or outcome and the control are the participants without the disease or outcome. So just a quick summary, in cohort studies, you start with groups that you know have either been exposed to a risk factor or haven't been exposed to a risk factor, and you track them to see if they develop an outcome or a disease. If they do develop a disease or outcome, it is referred to as incidence, which means it's a new case. Also, cohort studies can be prospective or retrospective. If the study starts before the outcome is known, it is a prospective study. If the study starts after the outcome is known, it is a retrospective study. In case control, you start with groups that you know either have the disease or outcome or don't have the disease or outcome, and you see if they were exposed to a specific suspected risk factor that you think may have led to the disease or outcome. Case control studies can be prospective as well as retrospective. However, prospective studies are generally much more rare compared to retrospective case control studies. Also, both include people with similar characteristics and both fall under analytical research. Now that we've established the differences, let's revisit our appetizer question. A study is being conducted in which two groups of people who work as dietitians are being followed. Group A has not been exposed to cigarette smoking. The other group, group B, has been exposed to cigarette smoking. Both groups are going to be tracked to see if they develop emphysema over time. Which of the following best describes this type of study? A. Analytical study, B. Descriptive study, C. Cohort study, D. Case control study. So, analyzing the answer choices here, we have two general answers in analytical and descriptive. 
and two specific answers in cohort or case control. Now, it is always considered best practice to choose the more specific answer, however, if the specific answers are somehow both incorrect, then we may have to choose from the general answers. So let's first decide if either the specific answers cohort study or case control study is applicable to the scenario in the question. In this scenario, two groups are being followed over time to see if they develop emphysema. And we know in cohort studies, participants are followed over time to see if they develop a particular outcome or disease. This is in contrast to case control studies, where you start with a population that you already know has an outcome or disease, and you look back at both groups to see if you can determine what risk factor the populations were exposed to that may have led to the outcome or disease in question. In this scenario, we don't know who will develop emphysema. We're tracking group A and B to see if they develop emphysema. Thus, we are not starting with knowledge of who has the disease, so we have a strong indication that this is a cohort study. If the question had stated that group A has been diagnosed with emphysema and group B hasn't, and we are going to look back to see who was exposed to cigarette smoking, then it would be a case control study. So, now let's look back at the choices of analytical or descriptive. Well, we know cohort studies fall under analytical studies. However, since a cohort study is a more specific answer, whereas analytical study can refer to other design types that wouldn't be applicable to the scenario in the question, we can safely eliminate analytical study and choose cohort study as our correct answer. Okay, now we can move on to our next appetizer question. Which of the following is most often associated with paralysis? A. Staphylococcus aureus B. Clostridium perfringens C. Bacillus cereus D. Clostridium botulinum So, in looking over all of these answer choices, are they foodborne illnesses or foodborne intoxications? They're all foodborne intoxications, and intoxications involve a toxin forming in the food before consuming the food. So, by the time we eat the food, it is already compromised. This is why the onset times of symptoms in foodborne intoxications generally manifest so quickly because the damage is already done to the food. So if you're trying to remember onset times, just keep in mind that generally intoxications present symptoms within 24 hours because by the time we eat the food, it is already compromised by toxins or spores that will release toxins. The only exception is Clostridium botulinum, which can take up to 36 hours to present symptoms. However, symptoms can also present within 4 hours, which is still pretty quick. Speaking of spores, the only non-spore forming foodborne intoxication listed is Staphylococcus aureus, but the others are spore forming. That's why the following mnemonic can come in handy. 
Spores cause chaos, bro. With the S standing for Staphylococcus aureus. C standing for Clostridium botulinum. The next C standing for Clostridium perfringens. And B standing for Bacillus cereus. Spores cause chaos, bro. You can also replace spores with Steph, as in Steph Curry, the NBA player. And he is known for making three-pointers, so that can remind you that three of these foodborne intoxications are spore-forming. Now, let's break down each answer choice. Staphylococcus aureus is not known to result in paralysis. It is known to not result in fever. That's what you want to remember. You can remember this by thinking that if you're working on staff, specifically food service staff, you can only work on staff if you don't have a fever, or else they won't let you work. So Staphylococcus aureus is not the answer. Let's continue. Clostridium perfringens is associated with cafeteria food, and you can remember this by looking at the word perfringens. There is a P, R, E, F, E, and R in perfringens. So the word prefer is in perfringens. There is also an F, R, I, E, and S. So the word fries is in perfringens. Now think back to when you were a kid and you ate at a cafeteria. Wouldn't you prefer they had fries in the cafeteria every day? I always did. <laughs> so that's one way to remember that Clostridium perfringens is associated with cafeteria food. However, it is not associated with paralysis, so we move on. Now we have Bacillus cereus. It is also not associated with paralysis. However, you want to remember that it's associated with rice, grain, starchy foods, among others. So the word is Bacillus cereus. Focus on the word cereus. The way it's spelled, it almost looks like cereal. And cereal is related to grains and foods like rice and grains and they are known for having Bacillus cereus. So focus on the cereus reminding you of cereal, and remember that it's associated with rice, grain, starchy foods. Now let's move on to our last answer choice, which is Clostridium botulinum. So this does result in paralysis, and the way to remember this is to think of Botox. Botox is actually made with Clostridium botulinum, which is why when you, for example, see a person that received Botox injections in their face, they aren't as expressive on their face as much as someone without Botox. That's because, to some degree, that part of their face is paralyzed. So, botulinum, Botox, paralysis. Now, if you have paralysis, then your speech will be slurred since you can't expand your mouth in a normal way. The words will come out as if they are slurred. So slurred speech is another key symptom of Clostridium botulinum. You also want to remember that honey is a source, and you don't want to give it to an infant. 
one way to connect honey to Clostridium botulinum is look at the second word, botulinum. It starts with the word bot, and the word bot rhymes with the word pot. Therefore, honey pot. Okay? So, considering that Clostridium botulinum does in fact result in paralysis, it is the correct answer. Another thing to keep in mind is all of these intoxications result in diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. Clostridium botulinum is more known for its other symptoms because they're so unique. So sometimes it's not included in some sources that Clostridium botulinum results in diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. But most sources that are specific to food safety do include those three symptoms as part of Clostridium botulinum. Because all of these result in diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, all of these intoxications, you can think of the acronym DNV, which kind of sounds like DMV. And what happens when a bunch of people are waiting in line at the DMV? It can be a very toxic environment, right? So DNV, foodborne intoxication toxic environment. Okay, now we can move on to our next appetizer question. A food service organization has 22 FTEs on staff that distribute meals during service time. How many meals are served per labor minute if they produced 5,000 meals in a 40-hour week? A. 5.68 B. 0.87, C, 0.09, D, 0.21. All right, when it comes to these types of questions, these meals served per labor hour or meals served per labor minute, we have to find the total amount of time first. So we multiply the number of FTEs by the number of hours in a regular work week, which is 40. Now, we're going to multiply 22 FTEs times 40 hours, which will equal a total of 880 hours. Now we know there are 60 minutes in an hour. The question is, do we multiply the total hours by 60 to get the total minutes or do we divide the total hours by 60 to get the total minutes we multiply and just remember that minutes will always be more than hours so if we were to divide 880 total hours by 60 minutes we would get 14.67 minutes which doesn't make sense because there should always be more minutes than there are hours because minutes are smaller than hours since it takes 60 minutes to equal one hour. If we were to multiply 880 total hours by 60 minutes, we would get 52,800 minutes. That makes sense. That's correct. 
let's move on. Now, since we're looking at meals per labor minute, that per is very telling. It tells us that we will be dividing whatever is said before the word per will be the number on top, aka the numerator. And whatever word that is said after per will be the number on the bottom, aka the denominator. So in this case, it's asking for meals per labor minute, which means that we will be dividing meals by our total minutes. So we take the number of meals, 5,000, and divide it by the total minutes, 52,800, and we get 0.09 meals per labor minute. So just remember, find the total time first by multiplying the number of FTEs by 40. Convert that number to minutes, if being asked for meals per labor minute. Minutes should always be larger than hours, so in order to ensure this, multiply by 60. And whatever is stated before the word per is being divided by whatever is stated after the word per in these meals per labor hour slash labor minute questions. So if we revisit our answer choices, the 0.09 answer choice is listed, and that is our correct choice. Notice answer A, 5.68, is the answer choice if you were to have stopped at just trying to find out the meals per labor hour, and that would be the number if you wouldn't have went that extra step to convert to minutes. And this is very common on math problems to see answers for both or multiple situations where missteps could have taken place. So be very careful and be confident in your ability and your process and you'll be totally fine. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the RD exam with video lectures and colorful notes. You can also hit us up on our socials, which are listed in the episode descriptions. And this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye-bye.